Let's turn to Luke chapter 22, the Gospel of Luke. While you're turning there, let me again bring to you the warm greetings of the Heritage Reformed Church and Puritan Reform Theological Seminary. We definitely appreciate much this church and appreciate all the support you give to the seminary, also in helping our students and having several faculty members in your midst as well. Let's read from verse 24 through 34, Luke 22, 24 through 34. Hear the word of God as it comes to us this morning. There was a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest? And Jesus said unto them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But you shall not be so, but he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief, as he that does serve. For whether is greater, he that sits at meat or he that serves, is not he that sits at meat, but I am among you as he that serves. You are they which have continued with me in my temptations, and I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed to me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day, before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Some years ago, in my first pastorate, a couple came to me for marital counseling, and the woman in particular was quite distraught, and she asked if she could divorce her husband. And I asked her why she wanted to divorce her husband, and she gave this answer, because my husband is not meeting all my needs. And when I explained that only Jesus Christ can meet all our needs and that there was no individual person on earth, also not a spouse, who could ever meet all our needs, she seemed genuinely puzzled and her husband seemed genuinely relieved because you see, only one can meet all our needs and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does that particularly through a doctrine, a teaching that is so minimized today, it's almost embarrassing. Even in reform circles, often glossed over or just referred to casually, but not preached in depth. And that is the office-bearing ministry of our Lord and Savior, prophet, priest, and king. So that through his office bearing, he meets all our needs, enabling us to go out and be prophets, priests, and kings with small p and small k to serve him 
in this world to his honor and to his glory. Now, there's two ways of approaching this vast subject. One way would be to take it doctrinally as a systematic theology topic and present you with biblical expositions of what the Bible says about Jesus as prophet, as priest, as king. And that would, that would be a, a wonderful series of sermons to preach. But another way is to look at a story in the Bible and to see how Jesus meets all our needs through that individual history. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So I ask your attention for verses 31 and 32. We're going to be narrowing our focus here to these two verses this morning. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So how can Jesus meet all our needs? Well, three ways. First, as through his prophetic admonition. Second, by his priestly intercession. And third, by his kingly commission. Now, Jesus spoke these words directly after he instituted the Lord's Supper after he had eaten with his disciples and said, with great desire, I have desired to have this last meal with you. This was the institution of this sacred sacrament, Holy Supper. And the disciples are arguing, who is greatest among them? What a tragedy. What a disappointment for Jesus. But Jesus sees in this that Satan is out to destroy his own 12, his hand-picked 12 apostles. And he knows that one of them will betray him, Judas Iscariot. And so he understands that he, as he's about to go into Gethsemane, Gabbatha, and Golgotha, go through those three G places of suffering to pour out his life for his own, that Satan will try to wreak havoc among his sheep. For when the shepherd is gone, the sheep shall be scattered. And so Jesus at this point breaks into their lives, breaks into their argumentation, and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan wants to have you to sift you his wheat. You see, the frightening truth is that the disciples were not aware of Satan's presence. The comforting truth is that Jesus was. And he knew that as shepherd, when he would be smitten, the devil would redouble his energies and attack the disciples like a wolf attacks defenseless sheep to scatter them. And so Peter, Simon Peter, is in particular danger. He's the ringleader of them all. Have you ever noticed that every time the apostles are mentioned in all four Gospels, Peter's name is always first. But he's also in danger because he thinks he's first. He thinks he's a bit better than all the rest. He says, though all will deny thee, yet will not I. And so Jesus singles out Simon Peter. And he says, Simon, Simon, behold. It's actually a triple warning. A triple warning. 
You know, if you as a parent still today call the name of your child twice in earnestness, your child will sit up and pay attention. You mean business. If you say, uh, Sarah, Sarah, Sarah is going to notice. Well, in the Greek language, that's even more true. And this is actually the third time that Jesus has used the double naming. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Martha, Martha. And now Simon, Simon. It means pay close attention. I have something very important to say. But that's also what the word behold means. It means pay close attention. So this is actually a triple warning. And this is the only place in the Gospel of Luke that the word behold is added to the double warning. So Jesus is deadly serious. It's as if he's getting down on his knees and putting Peter down and looking him eyeball to eyeball and saying, Simon, I've got something important. I want you to be awakened from your lethargy of pride that you stand above everyone else. I want you to hear me, Simon. Satan wants you. This morning, I'm here as God's ambassador to say to you, Satan wants you, my friend. He wants you, young people. He wants you, boys and girls. He wants you, parents, grandparents. Satan's great goal with Christians is to get them to stumble and fall, to dishonor and blaspheme the name of their Savior. And so he comes with prophetical admonition. He meets our needs as a warning prophet. You see, to warn someone is actually a benediction upon them. Jesus uses warnings, think of the book of Hebrews, where he gives so many warnings to actually enable his people to persevere in faith. You see, Jesus says in Hebrews 6, you will not fall, but I'm persuaded better things of you, but I'm warning you not to fall. And the very warning itself is a means I use to keep you from falling. And that shouldn't surprise us. We do the same thing with our children, don't we? 20 years ago or so, when our children were very young, I took them out to a, a spot in our, our driveway. We still live in the same house. And it's a very busy road. And I took them out to a spot in our driveway where we have a chalk line across the driveway. And I got down on my hands and knees and looked my kids in the, eyeball to eyeball and said, don't you ever dare cross this line because you will die. You'll be killed by the cars, you understand. Don't you dare grow across the line. Now, when they were very young, if they had crossed the line and gone to the road, my wife would have run out, I'm sure. She would have had her eye on them and caught them before they, they hit the road. But the warning was used as a means to teach them not to go across that line, not to go into the dangerous road. We didn't do that because we hated them. We did that because we love them. And you see, Jesus warns us in our lives, not because he wants to be negative, but because he knows how prone we are to slip back into sin, to backslide, and he warns us because he loves us, 
and thereby he meets our needs as a prophetical admonisher. You see, Satan, can't, Satan doesn't know all the thoughts of your mind, by the way, but he can observe closely your behavior. And he can see what you like, what you don't like. He's got thousands of years of experience of observing human behavior. And so he knows each person. He can dissect who we are pretty much from our words and our actions. And he knows our weak points. He knows what can get us to fall. And that's critical for us to realize. Because there are certain temptations in each one of our lives that we're more prone to fall into than other temptations. And Satan will try to work at us to get those things in front of us. Be it something we see, something we hear, or something we can exercise some lust upon. You know, I'm, not, I'm not a very good fisherman, but when I was young, I, I took my son fishing a couple of times only. But one time... We were, we were camping, and I, 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 know, I know enough to put a worm on the end of a hook and throw out the line, and I did that, and immediately a fish bit, and I reeled it in, and it was, it was a pretty good-sized walleye. And there were other fishermen around me who had been fishing for a while and hadn't caught anything, and they came and surrounded me, and they said, what'd you get? And I said, well, this fish, and I didn't know what it was. And they looked at me, and they said, that's a walleye. They said, what did you use to catch it? I said, a worm. They said, you caught a walleye with a measly little worm? Yeah. And you see, that's what Satan does with us. Sometimes we have temptations that are so easy for us to fall into that the smallest, most measly little temptation, he can get us to stumble. And Jesus wants to warn us. Satan wants to have you. He's a good fisherman. Don't yield to his devices. But treat every spark of hell in every temptation as something that can get you to stumble and dishonor your Lord. You see, too often we're too easy prey for the devil. And all his temptations are so many welcome billboards along the broad road that leads to destruction. So he warns us. But Simon Peter pushes past all these warnings, doesn't he? He responds, Lord, I'll go with you into prison and to death. He's not shaken. He's not shaken by the seriousness of Christ's words, apparently not even by the fall of Judas. I wonder, in your life, do you get shaken by the Lord's warnings? Or do you, do you think you're just going to stand and even when other people fall in similar temptations, you just walk into temptations boldly, courageously, thinking you're self-sufficient. I'm warning you this morning, Satan wants to have you. And the word to have you here is a strong word. In Greek, it's exiteo. It's the strongest possible tense. It's, it's an intensified form of the verb to ask or to pray or to ask excessively. It's almost as if it reminds us of Satan coming before God in wanting to tempt Job and, and, and asking for permission 
to destroy Job. Satan wants you. He wants to wreak havoc with your mind, with your body, with who you are. He wants to sue you, as one old Puritan put it, to sue you in heaven's courts. He's getting confident now, you see. He's got Judas Iscariot under his belt. And now he thinks, well, I've, I've, I've cut down the lieutenant. I'm going to go for the colonel, Peter. I'm going to destroy these apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Satan wants us. He wants particularly you young people. He's a real living enemy. And particularly when we're young and we think we're invulnerable many times, he wants to come after us to destroy your life, to lead you astray, or to make you presumptive when you don't know the work, the saving work of God within you, to destroy you either way. He wants to have you, Jesus says, to sift you as wheat. And what does that mean? Well, in Bible times, a farmhand would have an instrument that was called a sieve. It had a long handle and a, and a broad uh, scoop on it. And the farmhand would scoop up mixture from the threshing floor, shake it back and forth with his wrists so that the dirt and dust would fall, and then shake it up and down with his wrists so that the straw and the chaff would come to the surface. And what Satan wanted to do was to have that straw and chaff come to the surface and choke the grains of wheat that were lying in the bottom of the sieve. And so his goal is to make a mess of everything, to have you, to sift you as wheat, to choke the work of God within you. So that the evil that is within you in your newborn soul would choke the divine graces, or better yet, that prove that you had little or no wheat at all. Satan's goal is to keep you from the Lord Jesus Christ, to keep you from living for him, from being conformed to him. And we all have times when we're in Satan's sieve. Not just times of adversity, though that's a special time of being in Satan's sieve, but even in times of prosperity, we can be in Satan's sieve when things are going well. And we don't need the Lord quite as urgently. But one way or another, you see, Satan often takes us into his sieve. And when we get into his sieve, particularly in adversity, we don't always do so well, do we? When Peter got in Satan's sieve here, he, he denied with curses that he knew the Lord Jesus. When Job got in Satan's sieve, he responded well first, but a couple chapters later, he was cursing the day he was born. Jacob and Satan Siv said, all these things are against me. It's a, not so easy to do well when we're in Satan's sieve. Abraham, the father of the faithful, when he was tempted, he lied about his wife Sarah, saying, she's my sister. You see, in such ways, the straw and the chaff of our own indwelling sin can seem to choke the wheat, the kernel of God's grace. And we, we need to learn how weak we are through these prophetical admonitions. We need to learn to cry out with Paul, O wretched man that I am, the good that I would I find myself not doing, the evil that I would not do I find myself doing. Who can help me? 
I thank God through Jesus Christ. He alone can help me. He alone can meet all my needs. He alone can keep me from sin. So you see, Satan's no trivial enemy. We are opposed by a cunning and resourceful enemy who can outlive us, outwork us, and outwit us. And in his sieve, we are to learn that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's not a very pleasant lesson to learn. But we need to know that Satan is, is smarter than we are and always seems to be one step ahead of us. And it's sort of like ISIS. As soon as we in America get figured out what they're doing, they, they change tactics. Now the big thing is driving vehicles into people or shooting people from a higher uh, strategic position down into a crowd. Will that be duplicated now? Is that, is that the new method? We don't know yet. But they always seem to be one step ahead. As soon as, as, soon as we catch up with them and learn to protect ourselves from one technique, they come up with another. It's like Satan. You know what it's like in your life, right? As soon as you think you got one thing conquered, he comes from another angle. It's like a watermelon farmer I read about. He uh, was doing well in his business, but there was a thief that kept coming and stealing watermelon from his watermelon patch. So one day he put out a sign, warning, one of these watermelon is poisoned. And the thief didn't come for weeks. But one day he walked out to his patch. There's a sign beside his sign, warning, two of these watermelon are poisoned. And the poor farmer had to throw away all his watermelon. He didn't know. You see, Satan is like that, one step ahead, one step ahead. And Jesus is warning us here, beware, be aware of Satan's devices. He's meeting our needs through this prophetic admonition. But thank God our text doesn't end at the end of verse 31. Thank God for verse 32. But, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. This is a wonderful thing. Jesus says, but I, and it's in the emphatic tense in Greek, but I myself have prayed for thee. Satan himself wants to sue you in heaven's courts, but I myself, and I'm mightier than Satan, I'm the living God, he's only a fallen angel, I myself have prayed, I too have asked. And Jesus uses a strong word as if to say, I have countersued in heaven's courts. He has sued to have you, but I've countersued to have you. You see, Jesus knows that he and Satan are in crisis mode. This is Satan's hour, but ultimately it's Jesus' hour, because Jesus in suffering is going to destroy through his death him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And so as Satan is biting Jesus' heel to get him to stumble and fall and to kill him on the cross, at the same moment Jesus is crushing the head of the serpent, destroying Satan. The battle of all battles between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman is now to take place. This is the apex of it all. 
through Gethsemane, through Gabbatha, through Golgotha, Jesus will earn the right as he goes into Satan's sieve himself to deliver you, my friend, from Satan's sieve and to lead you in his ways to be his disciple and to be a priest unto him. And so he says, I prayed for Simon Peter. I pray for you. Now it's interesting. Here's one case in the Bible, by the way, where the thee and the thou and the you actually have a lot of meaning. One of the drawbacks of our modern language is you don't know when I say you if I'm speaking to you individually or you in plural as a, as a group, do you? That's a, that's a real problem in our English language. So I guess the Southerners try to solve that with their slang, y'all, y'all. That comes from the need to distinguish between singular you and plural you. Well, of course, in the Bible, the thee and thou means singular, and the you means plural. So listen again to our text. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you, plural. So as he's talking to Simon in particular, singling him out, he's still speaking to the whole group of disciples. I'm warning all of you. Satan wants to have all of you. But then notice this. But I have prayed for thee. Now he speaks directly to Simon Peter alone. I prayed for thee, Simon Peter, that thy personal, Simon, faith fail not. Notice what Jesus is praying. The word for fail here, by the way, is eklipo, which means, from which we get the word eclipse, which means to come to an end or to be blotted out. It's like... Recently we saw with the eclipse, you have the eclipse of the moon, you have the eclipse of the sun. You see, Jesus is saying, I don't want your faith to be blotted out. That's what I'm praying. Interestingly, Jesus does not pray, does not pray, Simon Peter, I hope your self-righteousness doesn't fail. I'm praying that your self-ability won't fail, that your own sense of your own leadership won't fail. You see, there's so much of Peter that had to fail. But Jesus says, I'm praying that your faith won't fail. Why faith? Because you see, faith has one object, and the object of faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Matthew Henry said, faith honors, Christ honors faith the most of all his graces because faith honors Christ the most. Faith is that cardinal link that anchor that ties us to the rock of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. If that fails, everything fails. And Jesus says, that's the one thing I'm going to pray for you that won't fail. So Satan may, may do a lot. He may destroy you, may get you to stumble in many ways, but I want to tell you something, Peter. He will not be able to destroy your faith because I have prayed for you and I, thee, and I have gone through the sieve myself for you in particular, Peter sinlessly, so that I can apply my sinless merits to your sinful behavior and wash away your sin and receive you out of the sieve even after you've denied me and restore you to your apostolic office and restore you to fellowship and communion with me. This is powerful. You see, Jesus is greater than Satan. And though we have to learn how weak and frail we are, we also have to learn how powerful the intercessions of Jesus are. And what an undermined, what a minimized doctrine that is.
I often say to my theological students, probably the, the most minimized doctrine today in the Bible is the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand how precious this is? Hebrews 7 says he ever lives, that is moment by moment, he's ever living at the right hand of the Father to make intercession for us. Moment by moment, he's remembering every one of his children corporately, you, but also individually, thee. What a strength that is. Have you ever been so beside yourself with needs, so overwhelmed that you, you could hardly pray, you could only just cry out, Lord, Lord. You came to your wit's end even in your prayers and you just turned to Jesus and said, Lord, please pray for me because I can hardly scarcely pray for myself. Take it over for me. Intercede for me at the Father's right hand because your prayers are always effectual, Lord Jesus. What a comfort to know that every moment I'm in his hand, every moment he's remembering me. No spouse can meet that need. No spouse can remember, be praying constantly for the other spouse. But Jesus can meet all our needs. As priestly intercessor, he remembers us. He sacrifices himself for us. He remembers us and he blesses us from heavenly places through his means of grace as that great priest who never forsakes his own. And so here's the beautiful thing. Think of, think, of, think of it this way. Satan wants to have you to sift you as wheat. The dust and the dirt fall. The straw and the chaff go to the surface. And he wants to destroy the wheat beneath it. But Jesus is his father's servant, his father's farmhand, if you will. And what the farmhand did is he reached in and grabbed the straw and pulled it out and blew away the chaff so that only the wheat remains. That's what Jesus does. So he uses the very devices of Satan, turns them on their head, and brings them out for good for his people. You see, as bad as Peter's sin was, God used even Peter's sin. I say that hesitatingly, but I say it with reverence. He even used that sin to teach Peter valuable, lifelong lessons because a broken Peter could be more useful in his kingdom than an unbroken Peter. Peter, proud Peter. So God break, broke him to use him. John Calvin puts it very, very powerfully here. He says, he says this. He says, sometimes Satan, unbeknownst to him, serves as a wise physician for us. He said, what are you talking about, Calvin? Well, it's this. That Jesus comes along, you see, and uses the very attacks of Satan, turns them on their head so that they bring out sanctifying truth, a deepening of spiritual life in the child of God. And so that the heavenly physician outwits Satan. He's the real mastermind, and he uses even Satan's devices for our spiritual gain. Because his prayers outdo Satan's prayers. You see, ultimately, Satan has no right to have you because Jesus has earned the right to claim you. And his power and his prayers are greater than Satan's. That's the comfort. That's how we can meet all of our needs. So he reaches in and he destroys the work of Satan.
But then, the text is not done. When thou art converted, when thou art repentant, strengthen thy brethren. This is a kingly commission. You see, here's the point. Jesus does not say, if you repent, Peter, I'm waiting for you to repent. I'm standing off to the side. I'm your helpless Savior. No, where the word of a king is, there is power. And so he says, when you repent, Peter, I'm going to suffer you and allow you to fall into sin, to break your pride, but I'm also going to bring you to repentance because I'm a king. And where there's the word of a king, there's authority and power. And that's exactly what Jesus does. So Peter's washing. Remember the story, boys and girls? Peter's washing his hands. Little servant girl comes up to him and says, you know, you were also with them. And he gets scared and he says, no, no, I wasn't. Then someone else comes up and the story goes on. And ultimately he curses and says, I don't know even who Jesus is. Just as he says that, Jesus happens to be walking through the hall of Caiaphas there. Peter looks up, and one look, one look from Jesus. Peter is smitten. It's the look of a king, a king priest with power in Peter's life. You know, one look can be powerful. I have a brother with a brother and his wife who have 13 children, and uh, it's just a, it's a, it's a wonderful family, generally very well-behaved family, and uh, but but my sister-in-law, she's got two gifts, two gifts: strong love, and strong discipline. And she brings those together in mothering, and it's powerful. So one day I'm sitting in their house just before dinner, and I see a little boy. One of my little nephews. He sees the cookies that are on the dinner table. He knows he shouldn't take one, not just before dinner. He's old enough to know that. But he looks over at his mom, and his mom is doing, making the meal in the kitchen. And uh, he climbs up on the chair. I'm just watching this whole thing. And he goes to reach out for a cookie. And he's, he's like looking at his mom all the time. And suddenly she's, she's aware of his presence, and she turns around. She just looks at him. And his hand froze about six inches from the cookie. He just pulled his hand back quietly. Went off his chair. Went back in the other room. Started playing. Neither one ever said a word. But the matter was taken care of with one look. But can you imagine the look of Jesus to Peter? You don't know me? You've been in my seminary for three years. I've been training you. And right now I'm going to lay down my life for you. Peter breaks. When thou art repentant, strengthen thy brethren. You see, he meets our needs as prophet. Prophetical admonition. As priest, priestly intercession. But king, as a kingly commissioner, go strengthen your brethren, Peter. Now I can use you. Now I can use you when you're broken. And that's exactly what happens. Who stands up on the day of Pentecost just some weeks later and defends all the apostles and preaches a sermon that's used for the conversion of 3,000 people? 
Who is the leader together with the Apostle Paul throughout the book of Acts? Who strengthens the brethren? Who is the one who wrote two beautiful epistles in which he begins after his greetings that we are kept by the power of faith? Faith that doesn't fail unto salvation. Who writes in those epistles? Be aware of Satan who's going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Who's strengthening the brethren? Who's warning them against sin? Simon Peter. You see, God teaches his people through their own falls. He uses them as broken vessels. In fact, often he will not use a man greatly until he's broken him deeply. And Peter is broken deeply. And he declares the bitterness of sin and denying his master in his epistles. He emphasizes the weakness of the flesh. He talks about the wiles of Satan. He talks about the willingness of Jesus to meet all the needs of believers. He talks about restoration. Jesus is the one who meets all our needs. And through meeting our needs, he then sends us back out into this world to be prophets, to be priests, and to be kings. The Heidelberg Catechism says it so beautifully. You know, when the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 12 speaks of the names of Jesus, and it comes to the name Christ, and it expounds how he's prophet, priest, and king, suddenly there's inserted a surprising question in the midst of all these questions about the names of Jesus. Question 32, but why are you called a Christian? A little Christ, as it were. Someone like Christ. And the answer is this. Because I'm a member of Christ by faith and thus am partaker of his anointing. That is, his office bearer anointing. That so I may confess his name, that's my prophetical calling, and present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, that's my priestly calling, that with a free and good conscience I may fight against sin and Satan in this life and reign with him eternally over all creatures, that's my kingly calling. So may I ask you this morning, do you know this Savior who meets all your needs and are you going out and reflecting him? You and I, we're created as prophets, priests, and kings unto God. We lost that when we lost the image of God with our fall. It gets restored to us in principle when we are born again. And as we grow in grace and sanctification, the exercises of our prophetically and priestly and kingly restored offices ought to grow and be augmented so that we live holy and solely for the Lord Jesus Christ. As we read from 1 Peter 4 earlier in this service putting off the old man, putting on the new. Is that evident in your life? Are you confessing Jesus' name wherever you go? Are you living as a sacrifice of thankfulness wherever you go? Are you fighting against sin wherever you go? Are you a prophet, a priest, and a king for Jesus' sake? Well, I want to close this sermon by just giving you an illustration and that particularly for those of you who, who can't honestly say that you are prophets, priests, and kings to God. You sit in church every week. You, you enjoy the fellowship. You maybe enjoy sermons. Maybe you even talk about the sermons a bit with your parents. But you have not yet surrendered your life to Christ. He's not number one in your life. Something else is. 
You're living in idolatry. You see it in your parents maybe, or maybe someone else, maybe a grandfather, or maybe a brother, your sister. That Christianity is real, but, but you're not there. You know deep down you, you have not been born again. You are not made a new creation. Jesus Christ is not your number one love. You're not ravished with him. And maybe you're afraid sometimes. You're never going to get saved, even though you don't really want to be saved. You know you need to be saved. And it's all in turmoil inside of you. And you're postponing. You're avoiding. You're trying to avoid the whole problem. You don't really know Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, who's the master of your life. You don't know him as prophet, your prophet, your priest, your king. Well, this closing illustration is for you. There was once a chess player, very famous chess player. He went into an art gallery in England, and he found a fascinating painting. It was a painting of two people playing a game of chess. One was obviously the devil, pictured with horns and a gleeful smile, and the devil was taking his own queen and about to move it in a place that appeared to checkmate the other person's king. And the other person was a, a young man who was biting his nails, nervous. The game's over. And the title of the painting said, Checkmate. It looked like it was all over. Maybe that's how you feel. You just can't find the Savior. You, you, you can't get out of your rut. You keep falling into sin. You, you keep going your own way. You keep pushing against Jesus, being your Savior and your Lord. Well, the chess player kept looking at that, at that painting. And suddenly, he blurted out to the young man, there's a move you can make, and you can checkmate Satan. And then he realized, oh, man, the guy can't even hear me. Stupid. But you see, you can hear me this morning. And if you feel you're about to be checkmated by Satan, I want to tell you something. There's a move you can make by the grace of God that can checkmate Satan. It's called repentance slash faith. It means you confess your sins to God. You come clean with him. You tell him how bad you are. He knows it anyway. And you confess your guilt. At the same time, you throw yourself at his feet and you cry out, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And you put all your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will checkmate by the grace of the Holy Spirit, Satan. And then you too will come to know this wonderful prophet this wonderful priest, and this wonderful king. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, we thank thee so much for the Lord Jesus Christ and how he meets all our needs. We thank thee that in him, through his prophetical, priestly, kingly offices, we find a threefold office that embraces every need we could possibly imagine. And we thank Thee, Lord Jesus, for giving Thy all, for exercising that office in such a way that we may be safe and secure forever and assured of Thy grace through Thy office bearing and that no man shall pluck us 
from thy hand. Please help us to treasure thy threefold office, to live out of it, and to represent it in the world. Help us to be prophets, priests, and kings unto thee, and give that thy name may be honored and glorified in our lives. And be especially with those who don't truly know thee. Expose them, Lord. Bring them to repentance. Bring them to faith. Bring them to fall at thy feet, crying out. If I perish, I perish, but I'm going to perish at the feet of Jesus because I can't live anymore without him as Savior and as Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.